1: And thanks to our Malt Mates at Cry Malt, that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week, I catch up with a good friend of mine, brewer Bradford Tetlow. Bradford has had an interesting brewing career after, like many people, discovering great beer while travelling overseas. After leaving his initial career in IT, he studied brewing and has worked as a brewing technician at Federation Uni, had a diverse career at Line as a lab technician and sensory trainer, QA leader and brewer at Little Creatures, And after a sabbatical, travelling and sampling his way around Europe, he has spent a little over two years working in the UK at Camden Town Brewery and now as Operational Quality Manager at Carlsberg. While we talk a lot about his career and travels, one of the most interesting aspects of this conversation for me is that we discuss the nature of beer sensory, something that we do quite a bit and is something that is really important to Bradford's career and to all of our enjoyment of beer. But it's also something that became particularly relevant to Bradford when he caught COVID and lost his sense of smell and taste, which he has only just been getting back after almost a year. It's a really interesting insight into how we enjoy and experience the beers that we drink. As always, it's a great chat with someone passionate about what they do, and I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Brad Tetlow, thanks to the miracle of uh, international communications, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. It's really good to talk to you. Thank you. I, I know that you're a, a frequent listener, um, and so I know you very well. You know, I've known you for, God, it feels like as long as I've been writing about beer. But for those who, you know, don't know you, um, tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, enter the industry and, you know, be a you know, a brewer. Um you're with Carlsberg at the moment, but you've you've, you've worked all around the world, and uh, yeah, tell us a little bit of how you came to be here.
0: Yeah, sure, Matt. So I I got into the industry quite a bit late, actually. I um I was in telecommunications for for many years in the, in Sydney, and it was probably really only a visit to the UK I'd done in the early 90s where I'd sort of discovered that beer was a little bit different to uh, what was really available in Australia in the 90s. Um, you know, I'd had old peculiar at a pub up in North Yorkshire, and all of the, the the variation of English sales that are available over here. So it was sort of a really o- eye-opener for me. Um, but I was in telecoms and it pays really, really well. And as you know, <laughs> brewing doesn't pay very, very well. So the idea of moving to brewing was was just out of the question for me. Um, fortunately unfortunately, the company I worked for went into receivership and got a nice healthy red R&C and decided that was probably the time for me to have a think about if I wanted to do something with it. To a invest home it wisely. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It meant moving to Ballarat. So i I'd, I'd been quite curious about Pete's course that he'd run down there, the, the postgrad. Pete Oldred, of course. yeah. But I didn't have a degree. Um and his postgrad is pretty much for graduates who've got a degree of some sort. So at the time they were offering food science degree uh, down there and you were able to do the postgrad as a elective stream. So that sort of worked really, really well. That closed down, unfortunately, I think two years after I'd finished that, the ability to do both. So yeah, up to down to Ballarat and um, did the food science course, which is fermentation, chemistry and processing, but also got to do all the, um, the brewing modules at the same time. Quite a small class.
1: Yeah, well, and what we'll talk about, again, these things very quickly devolve into back in my day, you know, <laughs> uh, when, when things were different. But what was it about the beers that you tried um you know the the things things old peculiar which it, again used to be about the only thing you could get you know there were things mm. like you know there was firsty ferret uh things old peculiar um you might have found a spitfire um, yep. or something you know on, on, on and they were all old and things like that but they tasted different but you know traveling around the uk were like were you a foodie by you know passion and you know you're interested in it, or what was it about the beer that Inspired, uh, inspired your um you know interest.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely always interested in in the variations of food and flavour. It's it's something from an early child. I think I've always been interested in that side of things. Um, I, I guess I wasn't really a big beer drinker. Um, when I lived in Australia initially in the nineties, um, at barbecues and stuff, if it was available, my dad had done a bit of home brewing, but that was back years and years ago before it was legal. So he'd you know. Buy his own grains and roast them in the oven and anoint wow. all that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, I'd never tried any of his beer because he stopped doing it by the time I was I'd been around. So,
1: but you'd been exposed to it, so it wasn't new, it, yeah. like it wasn't novel.
0: No, no, it was the idea that you could make, make these things yourself, and Your dad was always experimenting with crazy mulberry wines and potato wines and all sorts of things in, in the house, he was. Um, (laughs) had bubbling away here and and there but obviously I was quite young then didn't really have much interest in alcohol and even growing up I don't think I really had my first drink till I was about 18 19 it just wasn't a big part of our lives Mm. and then yeah the options for beer were were fairly limited um, at the time I probably was more interested in wine back then than, than beer to be perfectly honest Although Graham wine wasn't probably the greatest at that time of the year in Australia, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it was the culture as well. Like you know, the pub culture in the UK is very, very different to, to Australia. Um, it's a real family or, or communal sort of place. It's a meeting. It's a watering hole. It's not necessarily just a place to drink. And some of those beers you, you can't you can't smash down gallons and gallons of ale. It's just, it's just too filling, right? You just get fat and bloated to too quickly. So. A bunch bunch of guys I, I, I met when I was over here, they were camera um advocates and so they sort of got me going to to pubs that sold cask ales, which of course just didn't exist in Australia back then. You got used to the temperature and the carbonation. But it really let you yeah, all these flavors that you that you didn't associate with beer were suddenly there. There was um, you know, the plums and raisins in the dark beers. There was I mean this wasn't the craft beer movement in the UK. This is this is just the cask mm. ales that were around that were just had dominated, I guess, the UK for hundreds of years. And just, yeah, this whole explosion of, oh, this beer can be something different and and you can make it at home too. So it was, that was part of my interesting venture into it.
1: Because I, I think we met when you were um, doing the studies at Ballarat, but you were involved in the AIBAs in, because, when they were being run.
0: Yeah. So um,
1: cause, Sorry, know, that... I, I should say when they were run out of Ball <laughs> or by Ballarat, not because uh, yeah. they're still being run.
0: <laughs> yeah, quite small back then, I guess. Well it was still a big competition at the time so what Pete would do he would let the um we all get involved in doing the stewarding so serving of the beers to the the judges so even like first second year uni you got this chance to meet all of these great brewers that all came to Ballarat from across the industry and back then it was a real big mix of the old school big you know um CUB and Lion brewers and then the emerging craft brewers so you know Dave Benighton and Jane Lewis were all sort of coming to judge there at the time. So it was really sort of interesting time in the industry. And being the university, you were impartial. So you got to meet all of these amazing judges um, and see how they all work together. You know, this is big brewing and small brewing competitors with no barriers between what they talked about or how they interacted with each other, like all really good mates. I guess the marketing people weren't there. It was, it was all the brewers. So it was a really different sort of feeling. <laughs> the feel. um, weren't there either. It, no, exactly. None of that was there. <laughs> Just genuine brewers who loved beer. And, you know, you got to see that amazing interaction. So when when I finished my degree, um, the beer awards had become a bit too much work for Peter to do by himself. And so he'd approached the university and said, look, I need, I need an assistant. And, and they took me on straight out of uni. So that was pretty much 50% doing all the logistical work for ABA, so receiving all the samples, doing the labelling, all the database work, all that sort of thing. And the rest of the time was just helping Pete with the short courses, a um, bit of consultancy work. So up-and-coming brewers would come down and do their test recipes on the little 6 heck kit at the uni, sort of helping them do all that sort of thing. And that's probably where we met. I think it was probably, oh, was it the Australian Homebrew Convention maybe? in. Brilliant, brilliant I, 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 I think we because
1: I was editing Beer and Brewer for a few years, and I think there might have been a little bit of crossover there uh, in, the, in the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s. True, yeah.
0: yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's definitely where we met, and quite early on in the industry, but quite an interesting time to sort of get into brewing, and that's when I'd, you know, I'd gone down to Ballarat to think, you know what, I think I'd like to get into having my own brewery. I think Pete knocked that out of me in about 12 months. Um <laughs> it hats off to the people that did it but it was a lot of work and probably not what i was really looking for because i was really passionate about the science of it i wasn't really passionate about having my own brand or building my own brewery but the, the science and really fascinated me and that's why i guess i've ended up in quality because although i started off brewing and have brewed at creatures and over at the pride in new zealand and the quality aspect just really grabbed me so um yeah, that took me instead of the, the beer in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, so tell us about your your, your progress in because you, you've worked at Little Creatures. Was that your first outside of the university studies? Was that your first? No, the first, after the,
0: I was at the uni for about three years, I think, doing their small-scale brewing there. But a, a sensory role came up at the Pride in New Zealand. Um, so the Pride was their new big big brewery that they'd built. It was mm-hmm. basically designed to just pump out the, the big, the spates, gold metal ale, all the big, the big lagers. Um, that New Zealand produced, and they wanted someone to come over and basically get the sensory program up and running for that. And I'd done a lot of sensory repeat at the uni, so it was a nice fit. Mm -hmm. But I'd been there about, oh, maybe a year uh, when the big earthquake hit Christchurch.
1: Oh, wow, okay, yep.
0: Took out the Canterbury Brewery, which was Lyon's primary brewery for producing all the max range. Um, So almost virtually overnight, all of these beers got moved to the Pride. Um, So what went from a two or three wort stream brewery producing maybe five beers. Um, they were knocking out suddenly 20, 30 different types of beer. Um, so the sensory became very complicated very, very quickly. And also <laughs> the sensory panel just weren't used to tasting those sorts of beers. So uh, it was an interesting time to, to go through that development. Guinness came up there. That had all been, always been done down in Canterbury. And then, of course, they bought, uh, I don't know if you remember, contract bottling company. It was one of the early RTD companies in you know, in New Zealand.
1: Okay, they, no, I don't remember.
0: At the same time around, Independent were were climbing in New Zealand producing the RTD market. So Contract Battling Company was another one that was doing that. So Lion had seen that as a future and had bought that. They brought that in-house. So by the, ten, the time I ended, we were doing wine, RTD, soft drinks, spirits. They they brought spirits bottling in from overseas and beer all at the same sensory lab. So it was a very complex uh, sensory process by the end of it when I left. Also working in the lab there, to back cover, you know, micro and, and chemical analysis. And they also had a little brewery in Auckland called uh, Little Empire. It was only around mm-hmm. for about a year. They'd sort of bought a pub that had a, a brewery in it. But it was the exact same kit that I'd learnt in, um, at Ballarat on. So I got involved in that and we brewed down there a little bit during the week, which was always a lot of fun.
1: Now, what is it about this century Because I'm always drawn to, I mean, people think of brewing as an industry when you learn to brew, but you've... Gravitated towards that sensory side of things, which is, you know, I I I, I don't know whether it's a good, you know, I guess it's like learning music and then deciding to be the bass guitarist <laughs> in a band rather than the, you know, rather than the lead guitarist. You know, it, it's a critical job, but it's just that, you know, attracts some people and not others. So, what is it about the sensory that that has drawn you in?
0: Yeah, I again, the more I, I got, I mean, this, and a lot of this comes from Pete. You know, we, we did a lot of work on sensory there, understanding how we smell is it's a complicated process that we don't really fully understand everything about it And, and you have all these amazing things that happen that when you get two two aromas together from beer they can create a third impression of aroma so trying to understand all that sort of idea. Um, what what if it's contributed from the malt, what if it's from the yeast, what if it's from the hops? And now of course with the, the hops development that we're seeing in Australia and New Zealand, there's a massive crossover between is it a hop aroma or is it a is it a yeast aroma that's being produced? So I think that was a big part of it. That's trying to understand the science of sensory. And you know this is I have to be a little bit careful because I you am know, I'm, I'm looking after the quality department here at Carlsberg, and we have lots of very expensive equipment next door. But <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I, I stand by the my, my motto that the, the sensory is anything that really matters. You know, the consumer doesn't really care if it's two or three colour units left or right, or if, you know, the haze is one or two units higher than you could possibly see. They really, really care what it tastes like. And so irrespective of all that machinery, and that machine is really important for understanding what's going wrong in the brew house. And that's, to me... What I see quality's big role is to try and jump on problems in the brew house before they become a problem. But at the end of the day, the consumer just wants to know it tastes right. And so to me, it became the ultimate quality parameter, is is the beer acceptable?
1: It, it's funny that you say that because in a lot of, oh, sorry, i sorry, I, I shouldn't be too um, absolute about this, but when craft beer became a thing and we were debating what craft beer means and what it stands for and all of those sorts of things it was almost there was a level of that that was a reaction against beers that were just industrial was the word that was used but they yeah. were just done to a specification um and you know no sharp edges nothing it was just bang yeah um, but there was also um very little complexity very little you know nuance and very little subtlety um not everyone wants that either. I, I have to say, and it, it's almost as it, I, I hear you talking about an element of that that if you just go purely by numbers, you can miss that really human element that gustatory delight brings. You know, in in, in all of its many forms.
0: Absolutely, Matt. Absolutely, the intangible. And it is. It is intangible. Um, and and, and I remember a time at, at Lyme when we would there was a beer that had come through and. It was in spec, like the the bitterness was in spec, but it was it was a bit high, but it was in the specification limit. The residual sugar was a bit low, but it was in the specification limit. But that combination of a really thin body and the high bitterness, it tasted awful. and it ended up being mm. blended because even though it was in spec, at the end of the day when the panel sat down went, well, we can't release this. you know it's it's not. And that, of course, then goes, well, now do we need to tighten the specs up because we've actually, Independently, the beer is fine as an individual. You know, the haze is fine, the colour is fine, the bitterness is fine. But when you put it all together, the sensory impact is is unacceptable.
1: Mm. Um, and it's people drinking it, not lab equipment, exactly. as you say. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, and you know, I'm a firm believer. I think in, in the market is the decider. I don't, I don't think the food industry, as much as they like to be demonised, I don't think the food industry decides what consumers want to buy. They make what consumers are demanding. Um, and, and I certainly saw that at, at the Pride, you know, I know we, we would the blending process is a very big part of big brewing when you've got a beer that isn't quite in spec, and I remember having some complaints from an RSL club, or uh, equivalent in New Zealand, because we'd, pit, we'd put too much Sassy Red into, um, into a spates gold metal ale, and it was just there's too much flavor, and there was complaints from the from the old guys at the RSA <laughs> club that this has got some multi hoppy flavors in our in our space gold medal ale, it's just not acceptable. And it was a really low low blend rate, but it was enough for the consumer to go, no, nah, this isn't right. So, and that's that's who our ultimate judge is, right?
1: Starting as beer writer, like it, it was just the the, the 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 normal thing was you wrote taste notes, um, and you know you say this is a good beer and this is a bad beer, and but the more consumer tastings I did because that was always a big part of what I did I would be in venues and somebody would come up and say oh man have you tried this you know from this little craft brewery it's awesome and then you try it and knowing what the brewer was going for and then tasting what they hadn't (laughs) achieved um you know or or what wasn't meant to be there um but you know, it wasn't harmful. But you know, yeah. uh, I, I, I guess a great example is the crown, the, the great twenty ten crown ambassador reserve. Um, yeah. that had the Britannomyces when it wasn't meant to, and it, it's yeah. a perfect example <laughs> of fault or feature. It wasn't meant to be there, but in a lot of ways, it was one of their best vintages, and you mm. know, they were so far ahead of the market accidentally <laughs> in terms of bread barrel aged beers, and it was very yeah. subtle. It didn't dominate and things, and that. Experience of ha- having over and over again where people raving about beers that I knew were faulty in a way, mm. but they got pleasure. You think, well, this is the purpose of the thing, and uh, yeah. Obviously, if you're entering beer in a competition, it needs you know it needs to be what it says on the tin, and it should be for consumers as well. But if a consumer enjoys something, you know, mm. my opinion as a as a as an observer, you know, it, it's up for the brewer to try and justify, you know, yeah what its taste is
0: i mean i, I remember seeing a, a queue of people from a, a brewery at bendigo on the hop once um and it was it was a it was absolutely riddled with diacetyl and the queue is out the door okay yeah. if that's what you want that's what you want i mean you're you're paying for the beer and and you've decided but yeah there are i think there's expectations too we have to meet um to a point especially for a more educated consumer that if they're buying buying a beer x they don't want beer y in there Mm. But it shouldn't cycle innovation though.
1: No. And it's also why judging, um, you know, I, I like the, the better organized competitions where they've got very experienced panels, they moderate, mm. you know, it's, it's blind tasted and things like that. And, uh, you know, you do have an experienced panel uh, that's moderating to come up mm. because no one person, you know, there, there are one or two people who I just will listen to anything they say about flavor because they've yeah. just got incredible palates. But then there are so many judges who are blind to diacetyl or things like that. And it is that, you know, yeah. no one palate should define anything.
0: No, definitely. And that's, I think, that's why the whole group table process works so well.
1: A- have you done much in the wine industry?
0: No, no. I, I did my WSAT because I had to do a bit of sensory at, at Lyme. But no, not, not from that side of things. Do you, do you know Brioni? She's a sensory at West End or no, she, was, she was who was okay. at West End she came from wine and um and so she was my sort of go-to person when I was working in in the pride I had to give her a call and ask her questions because she's got she's got that big sensory background i think she did the Siebel course and all those sorts of things so but no for for me no my my wine and my um my spirits is all self-taught and yeah no i just ask because
1: <laughs> on the, on on that sensory side of things you know, wine writers, the, the 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 paradigm for wine is you do have a wine writer, you know, who writes his tasting notes. And I've mm. always thought that's useful because if you find a wine writer who obviously has a palate that matches yours or you enjoy their recommendations for whatever reason, it, it, it's worth following. But this idea that a wine writer is the arbiter of mm. this is how this wine tastes um, is, is one thing. But then also wine and beer are so different. You know, a brewery can knock out the same beer – every week and each one can taste subtly different so what are you reviewing it's like s- stepping into a river you never step into the same river twice because mm. it's constantly flowing by
0: yeah and you know what it, matt that doesn't change when you get to big brewing as much as perhaps big brewing says otherwise um <laughs> when, I, when i was at camden we would get some of the the beer the hell's made um over in the belgian breweries and it just had a belgian tint to it it was it was hard to say what it was, but you could tell beer that was made over there from the beer that was made. And this is a really clean um, Hell's Lager, right? It's a really, really simple flavour profile. But, yeah, just that, that brew-to-brew variation exists. Spates made it... The Pride was different to Spates made it um, in Dunedin. And it's, it's really interesting that equipment has such a big part in, in that sort of thing. So even the big of it brewers struggle the sort of ability to, to match those beers.
1: Now we have jumped around um we, we've Sorry, gone yeah. from New Zealand to no oh, no no no, no my, it was my fault i uh, disappeared down that rabbit hole but uh, our listener heard of you in New Zealand and then suddenly you're uh, you, you've been at Carlsberg you've been at uh, Camden and uh, yep. we, we've missed out a whole lot in between so
0: <laughs> i finished it at the pride um and Warren Pawsey, who'd been doing the head brewing at the Pride, had gone back to Australia to get Little Creatures Geelong off the ground, um, and he was looking for brewers. And up to this point, I'd, I'd been working in brewing for five years, but hadn't actually made any beer. <laughs> A little bit at the, at, at, the um, at the Uni, but that's about it. And so, yeah, I went back to to Australia um, and went and worked at Little Creatures in Geelong for about four years there. Um, and Warren had a great system there where it's it's rotational, so you come and you'll spend six months months in the bottling line, then six months on the keg line, then maybe six months in the lab, then six months making work. So a real sort of fast track exposure to the whole process um, from a probably more commercial aspect than than the uni was really used to doing. And that was a really good time to sort of learn and cut my teeth on the actual process. On a it, look, it's not. I'm not going to say it was a soft plumbing brewing. It was largely automated. Crohn's brew house. But there was enough hands-on stuff to be able to still, um, you know, step up from the the 6 heck kid at, at the uni to to what they were doing there. Um, I spent a little bit of time in supplier auditing, so I went and worked for Group Lion Group for a little bit. Because um, at the time, I think it's sold now, but Lion was involved in dairy and beer, which is an interesting combination to for any brewery to be involved in. Um, so I did a little supplier audit, auditing there, just basically going out to people who sell to Lion to say, make sure that they're doing. The things they're supposed to be doing in their factories and then i decided it's time for a break and i think that's when we started a bit more talking Matts. So and i decided to take initially six months off pack my bags and go to europe and just spend some time seeing what happened to the brewing scene in, in europe um so and, and when
1: was that how, how close to the covid
0: uh yeah time it very well actually it was, <laughs> it was 2018. <laughs> 2018. so you did get some time in before before covid struck Ended up with 18 months, actually. The money I had saved and house-sitting, which I think you know I do, is um, basically looking after people's pets while they're on holidays. Did a lot of that as well, and a lot of cheap airbnb So yeah, 18 months I spent traveling around Europe from as far as probably Austria up to Oslo and as far south as Portugal. So just sort of zagging across the countryside. I've been watching
1: your movements. We're obviously uh, Facebook friends, so even if we don't touch base for some time i've seen that you've moved around for for the listeners um who don't know there are websites that you know people post i'm looking for somebody to look after my house for three weeks um and so if you (laughs) so as a traveler you may not be able to sort of fulfill an itinerary but it does take you places that you may otherwise not have expected to go in an
0: unusual route as well, so if you actually look at my yeah. travel map, it does not look like the most efficient way of getting around Europe, you know, <laughs> yeah. from from France to Oslo down to Vienna and then across to, to Madrid sort of thing. But, yeah, um, and, of course, places it takes you. So I got to visit some parts of Europe that probably are probably fairly well off the tourist trap, some of them for good reason, for sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and looking after people's pets, um, trying to get cats where possible because they're a little easier to look after than dogs, a bit less demanding. And then use that as a base to go and visit breweries and, and and parts and seeing what the brewing situation was so just to jump back a fraction on again to to, to mess up your <laughs> order. no not at
1: all it's your chat it's your conversation
0: <laughs> uh, when i would left the uk in the 90s the um, the craft brewing was it was pretty average uh to be perfectly honest um and the english were particularly looking after their hops very well um and you had this weird mishmash of, of the cask breweries and then you had the the big lager breweries in the UK and then there was this little niche being driven in of, of craft beer that didn't really have much of an identity so I wasn't particularly engaged with the craft beer scene in the UK when I left in the 90s but I was curious to see what had happened because obviously Australia had gone through this massive um change in in what beer was and and where it belonged in the in the market to see what had happened over here and also in probably countries where beer wasn't uh as an important beverage to see what happened there. Mm. And it was really surprising. Um, You know, places like France, where it's such a massively wine-dominated country, trying to make beer in those countries and sell beer that's craft beer, um, massive obstacles, really big obstacles. And then when you add layers of of lack of experience and lack of skills in those, there's some pretty mediocrity brewers in, in France, to be honest. But then there's little gems here and there. And so it was really um, nice to find those sort of um, amazing little places that were really just trying to challenge the whole wine market, especially in the south of France, where there's drinking beer at all.
1: Well, we've got a, uh, a very loyal listener who'll be listening to this and uh, will no doubt have some thoughts to uh, to share with us. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, th- th- who's in Nantes, uh, Nantes, Nantes. I think. So, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, Nantes, Sorry. There we go. Um Nantes. Good, good Australian accent. Um, but what's it like, particularly you know, for any brewer, but particularly for someone who's a sensory-focused um, brewer? Can you just sit in a pub or a brewery and enjoy a beer, or you know, do you switch on and you 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 take it apart? Um, hmm. you know, w- w- <laughs> what's the experience for you? Does it does it suck the fun out of having a beer?
0: So when I first got into into judging, so after I'd been doing logistics, I eventually got an opportunity to sit on the other side of the table at Aber and start judging. And I had to make a conscious decision that, that tasting beer and drinking beer are, are black and white. Because if you take that palate to the pub, you're right. How can you possibly in, enjoy beer? Um, so in all honesty, I've only ever taken two beers back in my life that were just so bad or, or dumped them because they were so bad. Um, so no, I I, I will... Do an initial assessment, of course, to make sure that I'm, I'm happy with the basic profile of it. But no, no more or less than I th- would imagine that anyone who's trying to appreciate a new food or a, a mm. new do it. But as far as trying to dissect it, no, um, not unless it's horrifically wrong or I've been asked for an opinion by the by the brewer. But no, I, it's I don't want to take the fun out of it because that's why I got into beer in the first place. I really enjoy the the beverage, um, so I analyze it for what it's what they've done to it and the creativity around it. But never to sit there and go, well, you know, you've missed, you've missed the mark on the colour here, and well, you know, what's going on with this rose profile? You know, it's not even close. That's that would not be fun at all, I don't think. Um, but for, for faults, it's sometimes that's probably the area that gets a bit tricky because you can't not see faults. Yeah, that's yeah, so much work. You know, I've done four, four years of drinking spiked beer day in, day out at Lion, uh, and you, you get used to them. You know, you, you know what the faults are, and you can't. You can't not see them.
1: <laughs> can you enjoy a beer that's a little bit faulty?
0: Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Okay, yeah, and I uh, think it it can sometimes add um, interesting nuances to it as well. You know, you get some. Uh, we would once argue that that sour beer was faulty, right? But um, yep, uh, there's a level I think where it's it's intentional and that's fantastic. There's a level where it's accidental but it works, and then there's that level where you know this is not this is not right at all. So. Yeah, I, I think you can definitely do do both of them. Um, hop sulphur is not something I particularly enjoy, um, which is probably why I'm not a huge fan of the hazy beers. But I can appreciate them if they're in the right levels and they add they add something to the beer rather than detract from it. Mm-hmm. I would probably still argue it's a fault, but it's probably a fault that's becoming part of the style. So then it's a fault anymore. I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so you tra- you travelled around Europe. Were there any places that you weren't aware of, that you just sort of discovered some um, amazing beers? I think one of the
0: most interesting places I visited was a a brewery in Switzerland. Uh, It was in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where it was. We were doing a Hussig in Zurich at the time, which incidentally is the most expensive beer I've ever bought in my life. 17 euros, which is $34
1: for (laughs) 200 mils. 200, and that 000. wasn't an accidental charging as happened to uh, Peter Roebuck where oh, no. he was in charge <laughs> uh, like a hundred pound or whatever it was. No, know this was very clearly on the board. And <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, I wrote to this guy and said, look, can I come down? He said, yeah, no problem at all. And he was um, the Swiss have got a reputation of being i not say you, boring is not the right word, but they're probably fairly a conservative country, realistically. This is probably Switzerland's only wild brew house um, in that they're, they're located on the edge of a forest and they go out and they do the wild cultivation. So they grab acorns, leaves, pine needles, nuts, whatever they can find, but they're both microbiologists. So they bring it back to their their brewery. They make up some worts and they have all these, this whole big uh, shaker tray full of shot bottles and the little glass bottles that we use in brewing with wort in them. And they're, they're doing one liter brews basically. And they go through and they taste them all and they decide which ones have got a bacteria or yeast that's working and ones that aren't. And then from that they cull it down to okay, we're gonna use this particular one. And then that, that particular shot bottle becomes a pitching culture for the beer they decide to make. They've got a cool ship which is in their car park, so they fill it up with with wort, they push it out in the car park, they come the next morning, they pull it back in and they and they and they, and they, they brew with that. Um, so they do some really interesting stuff. It wasn't all amazing, um, it was all interesting. Um, and certainly mm-hmm. for the Swiss, which is very much a lager market. Their most interesting beer is one they call Tannenbaum. So uh, he's... Christmas Christmas tree, yeah. Christmas, Christmas tree. tree, yeah. So he's... um, Where he lives in Switzerland, there, old rights of families, or whatever. You, you'd get a, a dowry every year from the land for, for being part of the community. And it's distilled now down to a, a Christmas tree. So every year his family gets a Christmas tree and they, they just pop that in the... In a fermentation vessel at the at the at the time of of fermentation. So they chop the tree up, they put it in the vessel, and whatever comes out is Tanum One or Tanum Two every year. It's got uh, a number. Wow. Well, okay. It's um it's pretty wild. <laughs> it's very piney, <laughs> as you can probably yeah. imagine. It Doesn't always work, but it doesn't matter because they've got a following that is they can sell whatever they they produce that year. They're they're not doing it for you know grand riches. They, they're more experimental brewers in many ways. So that was a big yeah. big surprise for me. Um, I got to Admundsen. I, I didn't mention that before. I've got to Admundsen in um in Norway. I, I've seen their brews a little bit. In okay, uh, yeah.
1: named after the Explorer, oh, don't know, yeah. don't
0: know. Okay, it's one of the few craft breweries or one of the few early craft breweries in. Oh, okay, in sorry. Norway. I
1: thought, okay, yep, yep,
0: yeah. So they're just in Oslo. Um, I went down there and actually spent a day working on their bottling line just for a, a bit of fun. Um, and that was interesting because there's no Norwegians there. And the guy, it's run really? by a South African guy, and he's like, yep, I only. I only employ people who've got a brewing degree. Norway doesn't have a brewing degree course, so there's no Norwegians work there. So it was a uh, fully English brewery. So it was, it was English in there. There was Spanish. There was some Canadians, some Americans, and South Africans producing, you know, beer in a very expensive beer market such as Norway as well. That was that was quite an interesting place to sort of visit. Um, I have seen their beers in Australia. I'm not sure how well they travel because they're very very hoppy. That, was, that okay. was quite interesting. I think what really surprised me, Matt, to be honest, is I. I love the eastern eastern states of Europe. So to me, Prague's one of my favourite cities and I try and get there once a year if I can. Um, mm-hmm. And Budapest in much the same way. The craft beer movement there absolutely blew me away because I was not... Ex- certainly when I was there in the 90s, there was nothing resembling... Well, there was probably a local beer, a local Czech beer. That's all you could get. Go there now mm-hmm. and, and these craft beer bars have sprung up all over the place and they bring in beer in from all over Europe. So not just Czech beers, but they've got... French, English, Norwegian—all selling on these these pubs that might have twenty, thirty taps. Which I know in Australia and America that's not a particularly big thing. But to to go to these these countries like the, you know, Prague and sorry Czech Republic and, and Hungary to have this availability of, of beer, which just did not exist twenty years earlier when I was there, was absolutely phenomenal. The ruin bars—I don't know if you've heard of them there. it's a, it's a mm. subculture in Budapest where there's they're, they're like they're almost like industrial garages. Have become bars, so you're walking into it feeling like you're walking into a mechanics or a, a steelworks or a you know a fabrication unit, and all of a sudden you're in a in a bar that's it's really really grungy and grimy, but it's amazing beers available. And the whole atmosphere is a really industrial atmosphere, and that, yeah, they're called the ruined bars. They look like they're old buildings that are falling to pieces, they're designed that way. They make them look okay. that way. A really yeah. fascinating sort of subculture in Budapest. Yeah, that was really interesting that the, the beers. The beers in there, in that part of Europe, were amazing.
1: Is craft beer um, a young demographic? Like, is it being driven by a, a new generation who you know yeah. want something different from what went before? Okay.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's the the stereotypes are very similar. There's lots of bearded men making beer in, in those countries too, so that hasn't doesn't change much. Um, I would say, from my observations, purely, it's still largely male. Um there were certainly not the mix you get in Australia, I guess, of, of women in um in craft mm-hmm. breweries or craft bars drinking, but that's possibly also part of the, the cultural background there as well. Um but it's changing. There was there was definitely um female drinkers in those those bars, but certainly not to the degree that you would see in in Australia, I'd say.
1: That's one of the things that we really discussed in the Parish News offices, which is actually largely um, staffed by women. We've got Claire and Emmy and uh, Vivian. Um, and, you know sort of talking about it, is it you know uh, about the things that drive that. Um, and you know obviously, the more we see it inclusive, the more inclusive it becomes. Mm, um, yeah. so I, I wonder if it'll be the same.
0: I, I I would hope so. I would hope so i think I think Australia and, and New Zealand and America is really helping on that side of the industry I know when I was at Creatures nearly 20% of the brew force were women at, at one point in time so it is starting to mm. change here here in the UK yeah I'd say even at Camden we we had a, at least a third maybe a little bit less of the of the brewing floor staff were, were women working in they weren't English <laughs> they were primarily Americans that had come over to to work in the sector but it was okay the, the thing that disappoints me here I guess is the pink boots movement is next to non-existent in the UK um Oh, really? Okay. I think it did start up originally, and but it seems to have not not nowhere near what it is in in other countries. So that's probably not helping things. Um, and I said before, you've got the whole the three three movement issue in the UK. So you've got the the lager breweries, where I'm working now. Um, you've got the cask breweries and and the craft breweries, and the cask is mm. definitely the bearded cameraman who's who's got a very strong opinion of what beer is and and isn't so that probably doesn't help things a great deal but certainly if you enter the craft beer bar at camden in in the city it's it's full of all sectors of the community from young to old male to female it's a, a big diversity
1: Tell us, because you, you've mentioned a couple of times the breweries you've worked for in the UK. Tell us, uh, so so you once you travelled around, was it a case of, uh, um, I'm here, I'll do some work? Or were you trapped by the COVID um, <laughs> borders and uh, had to, decided to work? Um, so, yeah, I got to, I got to the UK. Um, at that time,
0: Lion had started their push into the UK. So they'd opened little creatures in King's Cross. They'd bought mm-hmm. Forpure and they'd bought Magic Rock. That- so I went up and spoke to those guys a little bit about opportunities, um, and Warren sort of helped me through that a little bit. I was still in chat with Warren at those, those times. Um, but uh, my partner got a job in the black hole of the UK in a town called Milton Keynes, um, <laughs> she, and she's a sensory scientist. So she took that role, and I said, look, it's easier for me to get a job than it is for you. So, where we, we find a job, we'll, we'll have a job. There's not a great deal of brewing in Milton Keynes, to be perfectly honest. It's, a, it's the Canberra, if you like, of, of the UK. Okay. It's, it's an organized, right. functional city with lots of straight roads and roundabouts with no soul, basically. But it works, it works as a city. But there's no breweries there. So, I sort of trapped a little bit between Northampton up here in, in Carlsberg, where I'm, I'm now. Um, and Camden sort of came on the radar. They're looking for a quality manager. And I knew Camden because Alex Troncoso, who Little Creatures Fremantle originally, had gone to Geelong to help design the Geelong Brewery there. Mm. And then when I arrived at Geelong, he'd left to move to the UK to help Jasper design the Camden Town Brewery. So walking into Enfield was like walking into a a mirror image of of Little Creatures in many ways. You you could see Alex's (laughs) influence everywhere, the way the the tanks were designed, the way it was laid out, the, the equipment he'd bought. Even the colours, you know, a lot of the colours of the equipment was all very. He was a big Crohn's a Crohn's fan, so it was all Crohn's brew house equipment, mm. and it was a good size. It was about half the size of Little Creatures, um, but going through massive growth. So they had six years of forty four percent growth year on year. So they were they were expecting to be at capacity by twenty twenty five, and I think they hit capacity when I was there in. Uh, last year, wow. Um, this, okay, uh, you know, which was why they would started doing some cross brewing with other breweries just to get the volume out. So it already become absolutely maxed out for what it could produce. Um, it was new, which was nice. You know, it was shiny and clean, and um, it desperately needed some quality systems because they say it'd grown from one lab manager to a one lab guy to to five in about uh, six months, and that needed some structure putting in place. So I was able to bring all the stuff I'd learned at Lion around quality management there. And they yeah there for two years, so we, we had a fledgling sensory program, I'd say. It was there, and then I had some good sensory panellists there, but that was all in development. And the idea, of course, was that it would be a perfect location to go and travel Europe for the next two years while enjoying myself at Camden. But the world said no. <laughs> the borders came down, and um, the brewery kept running, because it's... It, it was obviously um, part of the same things happened in Australia, that the, the, the mm. large pack disappeared off the radar and the small pack went up 300% increase in, in volume. So it wasn't enough to make the shortfall of the kegs. So we did have furloughed staff at Camden, but it was always operational. And, co- of course, quality doesn't have a the gift of being able to be furloughed because you still ferments, right?
1: <laughs> Although, for for those who don't know, you did catch COVID um, at did. one point. And for somebody in sensory, you lost your sense of smell.
0: Matt, this is a devastating part of my life, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, despite all the safeguards and traveling to London every day, I had no problems getting COVID. Then I went on holidays to a remote part of North Yorkshire and came home with COVID. Um, fortunately, I'd like to say it was a very mild case, a, Bit of aches and pains, but I lost my sense of smell. Um, it was total anosmia, I would say, for about four weeks. So that's the inability to smell anything. And then um, the word they use for it after that is called par- paranosmia, which is basically either uh, phantom smells or the inability to smell some things and not others. So I ended up with this situation, and I'd like happy to say it's just about recovered now, but it's taken me 10 months to get my sense mm. of smell back. The problem is that the, the phantom smells are not the nice ones, right? So, and they're triggered by by sulfurs. So, we're doing some research last night, actually about coffee has been a in, in indicators a, a significant um, trigger point for this condition. So, the, without getting too technical, the, the 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 pathway between the olfactory bulb and the brain gets broken. Um, mm-hmm. the defense the, the body has a defense mechanism to try and uh, prevent covid doing too much damage and then it has to rebuild and the only way to rebuild it is by smelling things but it gets really confused so uh, for about uh two weeks in february all i could smell was durian day in day out 24 hours a day and then gunpowder came in and then some surgey swampy cold skip smells would come and go and it was None of the nice little And these are
1: all phantoms, so it's not yeah, you know, either manifestations either. of normal smells. This was just phantom yeah, smells. Exactly.
0: And, and that's really hard to deal with when you're trying to do sensory on beer and it's like it smells a bit sulfury,
1: doesn't it? No, Rafford, it doesn't. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's like it it, it it's it's the thought of trying to do that um, it, it isn't hilarious, but it's uh, you know it, it, it's I, I just can't imagine what it would be like.
0: Yeah, and so my my partner had the same thing, and she's a sensory scientist, so she runs a sensory panel at a flavor house, and she she was fortunately lost it for about four to five weeks, and it came back for her. But she had a phantom ammonia; she could smell ammonia all the time in the house. Something leaking, something leaking. It's just really weird because I'm so attuned to my sense of smell, like. After doing all the work I did at the Pride and, and with Peter, it's something I naturally do when I'm walking in the street is the the dissection of smells and identification of them and just that whole – it's just the training, right? You know, how do I categorise the smell? Yep. Where does it sit? Is it a yep. ester? Is it a fruity? Is it a tan? All those sorts of things. And to have that suddenly removed, um, all the joy of food went – my alcohol consumption certainly went down because there's, there's no joy in in, in that. Um but about two months ago, my esters came back, and that was really nice because they're the nice smells, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, fruity, the fruity, citrusy, hoppy smells sort of came back. So, yeah, just about fully recovered, which is good because I've just been invited to judge at the International Beer Awards in November. So I was a bit worried if I'd have my sense of smell back by then, but it seems to be pretty much back. But, yeah, it's horrible. It's um, not, not to... Of course there's some horrible things happen with COVID, and many many people have died especially here in the uk mm. so on a scale of of, of severity the sense of smell is but for personal for personal reasons, it's.
1: Just, but on on an, yeah. an individual level would have been terrible and, yeah. and how does it feel now that it's coming back like uh, just trusting um, that it. sense and again. the
0: problem is like i can smell this but i I don't know if it's real or not, and I, and then you you're seeking sort of validation from people around you. Is you know, does this have this smell? Can can you smell this? And um, yeah, Bradford can smell yeah. that. Um, it's weird. It's just really weird. Um, my deodorant's been one of my worst ones, which is a really strange thing. I I, I have a deodorant that's got slight chocolate hint to it. It's the one I've always <laughs> used. It's the um the Dark Temptation. Uh, um, don't know it. Don't know. It's it's and it smells to me like rancid meat. That's not no, what you want to be putting on yourself. On <laughs> I know it doesn't smell like that. So that's been my, my, my sort of my gauge every morning. Like, a, yeah, a bit more chocolatey, a bit less rancid meats. It's, it's getting better. So that's been a good, I know what that smells like. And that's deeply imprinted. I've, I've worn it for 10, 15 years. So I know what it smells like. So the more it smells yeah. like it should smell, the more I know I'm recovering and, and getting it back in. To normal again. But
1: But even then, you know, we're so suggestible. How do you rely on your memory of that smell and the current experience of that smell um, not being mixed up? Yeah, I
0: know, Matt. Um, You know, I'm a massive advocate in in sensory, that it's often considered a soft science, but to me, sensory is a a combination of psychology, genetics, and um, and statistics, you know, they're, they're the three things that basically you use in any sensory panel. And the genetics is one of the ones that's the hardest to get around because um, it's what you can and can't smell. And then the psychology is that you know the, the group affirmation things when you're in when you're doing sensory is the the influence of someone else's opinion is very very easy to be persuaded. Mm. So I don't I don't really know. I mean, I I have I've got a little smell kit at home, which is basically it's a whole bunch of different. Um, aromas are used in cooking so there's butterscotch there's apple there's lemon and i just smell them and i and and i have to rely on what i know lemon smelled like because i'm you know at my age i should know what lemon smells like but you're right it's a it's such a a ethereal idea of smell is that i i I can't prove that that this is lemon smell i can prove that one-on-one is you too i can prove that that spells cat but i can't prove that that particular smell is what i remember lemon to be i just have to rely on the fact but i take solace matt i take solace in the fact that i know everyone smells things differently and what, one of the things we do in sensory training is acid so acetaldehyde it's a, it's a classic one you know everyone classifies it as the smell of a green apple but there's a subsection of us and I include myself that it to me it smells like um paint emulsion or, or cut pumpkin when you open a tin of paint that smell now, I know mm-hmm. it's aldehyde. It doesn't have to smell like green apple for me to know that it's acetaldehyde as long as I can build that trigger. So as long as the pathway's there and I can smell it, maybe the appreciation isn't as what it was. Um, but I can rely on that, that what I'm I'm smelling consistently and it's not changing. Therefore, my brain's allowing that pathway to rebuild that This is the lemon smell that you, you're now having to live with because that's what it's going to be smelling like. And hopefully it resembles what you smelt you know, two years ago before you caught covid
1: when you said that you drank less because you weren't getting the pleasure from it but what did it teach you about our engagement with food because on one hand we just need nourishment to fuel our bodies you know on a purely functional level Mm. but then our choices are very much governed by our hedonistic pleasure that we get from doing it um and what was your relationship with food when you lost your sense of smell
0: Sad, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I, I do eat for pleasure. I'm probably more than I, I should at times, as, as we all do. But I do. I, I...
1: Did, did you lose weight uh, quite apart from the illness? You know, did, did you find yourself eating less because you weren't getting pleasure from what you were consuming?
0: No, probably the worst part about it was I, I didn't care so much what I ate. And that's probably the bigger problem because it was the, the engagement with there is with finding the right food is that you're basically going for bulk and volume especially when you're sitting at home. Well, I wasn't sitting at home too much, but not being able to get out too much during COVID. So I'd love to say that, yeah, it turned me off food. It didn't. It just turned me off the selectivity of what I chose to eat and what I chose to didn't eat. And I didn't get pleasure in those things that I loved, you know. Um, the spiciness went – I couldn't taste chili for ages. That was really weird. And I'm a massive lover of of Thai and, and Mexican foods and not being able to appreciate that. You just tend to slip back into some really basic eating habits, which are probably not healthy. It, You don't have the passion or the care anymore about it. And you try, you know, you you want to care about food, but it's really, really hard when you've only got texture and you don't have smell or taste to be able to appreciate it. So, Mm. yeah, there wasn't... I'd love to give you the right answer, but there wasn't a great way of dealing with it. It's just... All I knew that from my readings was it wasn't permanent. So the, the the SARS virus creates permanent anosmia or can create permanent anosmia. The research shows... Mainly that the COVID one is a a less permanent version. It's a, it's a severing, but it's the 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 place it's severed allows it to be rebuilt through training. And so that was my only solace that it will come back. And that's probably where I got reengaged. It's like you know the only way to rebuild this is by smelling. And so once my sense of smell did come back, that's when I started to go through and go, okay, what does this smell like? What does this taste like? You know, is it is it what I remember it to be? Um, do I enjoy it? Is is it bringing me pleasure? I love the smell of coffee, and that that was gone for ages and ages. And, you know, then you're just drinking it for the caffeine here. And that's not quite the same because I drink coffee because I enjoy the flavor, not because of the the caffeine here. So, Mm. yeah, it's a re education process. Re education process. Slow.
1: So, (laughs) I'm just mindful of time. It's been uh, this thing i completely lost uh, track of the time um, as as we talked about this. So, but uh, you you left Camden because uh, I, I believe ABI has taken it over fully, so there was a, the purchase, but it was still left.
0: Yeah, uh, culture is really, really important to me, Matt, and, and no matter what people think of Lion, working for them as a company, um, the way they treat people is is almost gold-class example of what companies should do in many ways, especially for a big brewery, right? And so I'd, I'd been – that was my first big brewing job outside of university, right? and that was my idea of, oh, this is what breweries are like to work for. Um, Camden was great jasper pushed pretty hard uh, i'm not going to say he he was a pretty keen advocate for his brand um and there was a lot of work done at camden but there's a lot of engagement and passion around it too the simplest thing to me is that the culture of abi and i didn't go very well so the way that they run mm. the business and it's a successful business i'm not going to argue you know that they they dominate the beer market in the world so they're doing something right obviously in the way they do it but i was traveling an hour 45 each way to work at camden um with traffic on the M1 and the M25, which, if you've been to the UK, you know are the two most notorious roads <laughs> in the country. And it just takes one breakdown for it to become a five hour trip, right?
1: So that, that was the. A- it's no surprise you listen to a lot of our podcasts then. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> it was better than the traffic. I don't know that they'll put that on our slogan, but anyway.
0: But Carlsberg was, um, Carlsberg was at 50, 30 minutes up the road, a bigger brewery. That's huge. In comparison, it's you know it's it's twice the size of the pride. Runs twin mash filters here, so it's two 500 hect mash filters, producing pretty much Carlsberg and San Miguel for the whole of the country. Um, yeah, it's just closer, and I just needed to, to put some time back into Bradford's life after COVID. So that's why I basically moved up to Carlsberg. Um, a friend that I worked with in New Zealand had the role here, and she's moved on to higher up in Carlsberg in Switzerland, and so it became available. So it seemed like a really good fit for what I wanted to do in, in the quality
1: space. So here I am. Will we see you back at some stage uh, once you can get back into the country once travels a what, what, What's the plan? What's next?
0: Yeah, I, I think a couple of years here. Um, it's, this is a good opportunity for me to, to really put some um, hard nails into my quality um, career so in the brewing. But yeah, I don't think I could stay here for, forever. Um, wouldn't mind a little bit of a stint in Europe if possible. I do have a British passport that's been made a lot more complicated now with with brexit, so the the right to work in Europe's been removed so it'll I'd say in a couple of years it'll be back in Australia or New Zealand and, and seeing what's available then I think the hopefully the dust has settled and the the bigger breweries the bigger craft breweries are are, are bigger by then and, and more stable mm. and there's opportunities there because the problem is of course the work I do isn't small breweries't don't have a quality manager, they don't have the money to pay a quality manager, and um, while they may definitely need it in some places, it's just not an opportunity, unfortunately, so I I need to aim for that little creature and above sort of size to to do this work, and brewing is too much hard work. Too much hard work in brewing. I
1: Consultancy, don't. and uh, we're seeing a lot of breweries grow. So uh, anyway, Bradford, I've been watching the, uh, the, the day break behind you because yes. you are in the UK. So, it's, uh, so what time is it there now? It's uh, just on the hour.
0: Just gone 8 o'clock, yeah. And that's the, um, oh, eight o'clock. It's, uh, the fermenters behind me
1: massive <laughs> yeah, so i've uh, <laughs> I, I, I watched the sun come up uh over the carlsberg brewery so it, it, it's it's been nice it's been even nicer chatting to you so uh bradford thank you for uh for, for this conversation and uh glad to hear that you're on the mend and uh you know thank you thank you also for listening and all the support you give us
0: and look thank you for the, the podcast matt because I, I really appreciate listening in i know we share a lot of a lot of views on some of the the changes that are happening in the craft beer market so it's really nice to hear what's going on in australia rightly or wrongly, what's, what's happening with, with the, the side of the industry. So I really enjoy the, the podcast every day on the way to work. I, I try and catch up with what's going on and do appreciate the, the pipeline to Australia, so I can keep in touch.
1: Glad to provide that. So uh, we'll stay well and uh, look forward to having a beer with you, uh, either on that in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere, Somewhere. whichever one we can organise first. <laughs> Sounds great. And that was Bradford Tetlow. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. We thank Cryomalt for sponsoring this episode and every episode of Beer is a Conversation. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join the Facebook group, search for Radio Brews News and use the password Soapbox. Otherwise, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show. Even a couple of dollars a month helps us cover the cost of doing what we do. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service. We really appreciate it when you take the time to do that and uh, it gives us a boost and helps other people to find us. Or you can just tell us what you think privately and without attribution, if that's what you want, by emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. We'll be back later this week with our wrap-up of the news, the views, and as Pete Mitchum would say, the issues of the brewing industry. Thanks for joining us.